Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, can't defend corners Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's can't score goals, Kieran Maguire. Um, <laughs> Kieran, I can't believe I'm saying this, because we are two grown-up, intelligent men, but we, we've actually changed the time of our recording on Sunday morning because of a dog. Something... <laughs> Something's gone wrong in our world, Kieran, in which Finley is actually pulling the strings. It's, it's now the order is now producer guy Finley, you and me. <laughs> well, yes, he's had his walk, so he's, he's looking suitably content. Um, although, as we speak, I can see a delivery van at the end of the road. So, if they oh. do pop up here, he will kick off. Well, let's say delivery wonky jumps, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Uh, or maybe it's possible. <laughs> he's, he's heard the delivery van, hasn't he? Well, oh, no, no. Uh, the Baroness is making an espresso. And every time she makes an espresso, she gives him a wonky jump. So given that dogs have this classic Pavlovian reaction to things, he's now wandered off for a, for a, a mid-morning nibble. Oh, I see. And how, how was he with the naan bread you baked this morning in true Sussex style? Well, they're, they're they're presently resting, so I've not I've not made them. You know, I've, I've only just you know needed the dough, um, and they need to rest for two hours before before I put them into our homemade curry. A homemade curry. You've got have you got a proper homemade tandoor as well? Oh, I've, I've got I've got I've got a I've got a big green egg which I use for that. Yes, oh, let's not delve. Um, <laughs> literally an hour after we recorded the last pod, Kieran Tracy Crouch's fan led review of football government governance was was released, all 160 pages. Have you had time to digest, to cogitate, to understand? Yes, yes. Uh, they, they were kind enough to uh, send me an advanced copy. So uh, I, I'd, been, I'd been able to chew through it, but I wasn't able to formally comment upon it. Um, Did you go so... straight, to, straight to the index to check your name? <laughs> yes, yes, they spelt it right. That's the important thing. That's very good, yes. Yeah, I uh, I went to the a friend's a comedian's book launch about three years ago, and it was just hilarious. Says every single comic just picked up the book, looked at the index, put the book down again. <laughs> no interest in the book at all. Just see it <laughs> to the extent that he he eventually just said to somebody, "Have you looked under C? You might find your name there." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Tracy Crouch. Yes, the. So I'm just closing Bindley's door there. Um, the fan-led review did come out. It, it was very comprehensive. Um, Tracy has been working with a team of uh, economists, people that have been involved with things such as the Financial Conduct Authority, um, some uh, the, some part of the legal team as well, to try to put together what she calls, and, and I think it's an appropriate phrase, a holistic uh, analysis and set of recommendations for the game. So, uh, it, it's split into a series of smaller sections. Um, we've already seen a big pushback from the Premier League. They uh, they wheeled out Christian Perslow, private equity fund manager um, and uh, CEO at uh, Aston Villa, to uh, to to sort of do some professional sneering at the content, which I thought was was very harsh. I think uh, um, it it, is, it, ha- it has a lot of merit. But um, you can understand why the Premier League um, clubs and owners would not be keen on the content. So, I mean, I, if, if we if we start off, 
well, I think we've watched the the headline uh, issue, which was um, IRF, an independent regulator uh, for football, which would be similar to the Gambling Commission, I think, in in terms of its makeup. Um, so therefore, the uh, the criticisms of it, well, you know, it's it will be run by civil servants. Uh, you know, we'll be having you know, civil servants didn't invent Peppa Pig and all this type of nonsense that we saw from <laughs> the Prime Minister last week. Um, it's uh, it it will apparently be a panel of uh, people from from various parts of the game. So, yeah, and I think that's absolutely essential. We are all stakeholders in football not just the owners. And, and to date, I think uh, football is being run for the benefit of the owners. Um, the the independent regulator would have to have parliamentary backing, although the initial reaction from Nardine Dores, who is effectively the Minister for Sport, which she was positive um, in respect of that, um, and uh, clubs would be able to play football in the top five tiers of the English game on the back of being given a license. And if you failed to comply with mm. the conditions of the license, you would lose it, and therefore potentially you could be kicked out of football. So you know th- there is there there is a big stick. So I think that was the the main issue which uh, which garnered the headlines, you know, the the criticism of well, it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, that it shouldn't cost a lot of money necessarily. Um, you know, just take a look at Christian Perslow's salary at uh, Aston Villa. I'm sure he's uh, he earns every penny of his one and a half million pounds uh, there, as do all the other chief executives who are on uh, seven figure sums as well. So yeah, I, I, the this this body will not be. Uh, I don't think it doesn't have to be expensively run, um, but also it's not a fix. Because the it, we've got a gambling commission. Well, you know, there's issues with gambling. We've mm-hmm. got a regulator for water. We've got a regulator for the media in Ofcom. That that doesn't mean that those in, in industries are, are perfect. Um, and we've got a, a water regulator which has uh, which is absolutely useless. You know, you just got to look at the amount of uh, effluent that is being pumped into our rivers and and seas around around the country. Um, so. It's 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 interesting. I think it is progressive, um, but it is people. If people think ah, football's problems are going to go, no more Macclesfields, no more Berries, no yeah. more Derby counties. I think that's very naive. Uh, I don't want to get into too much detail, Kieran, because we're hoping to get Tracy Crouch on in the next week or so, and we will have a special episode in which we analyse it in full. And I know people are still taking it in. Uh, I will say a couple of things. First of all, I actually know. The woman who invented Peppa Pig. She's a friend of mine. Oh wow! Um, cool. Yeah, she's she's retired now. I can imagine. Yes. Basically, <laughs> if, you, if you producer guy's got money, my word. Um, I mean, there are a couple of issues though. Steve Steve Parrish writing in the Sunday Times um, today or yesterday for you people listening. Um, again, not happy at all with the idea of an independent regulator, which he referred to as government interference in the game but also said he was hoping to see um, a tax on transfer profit, not transfer spend, which obviously is not in there. But in general, he was he was actually in favour of it and, and in favour of some of the things that give some power back to fans, this idea of a, a veto on changing badges, et cetera, et cetera. But again, all of it's, all of it's sort of technical, Kieran, isn't it? Because we, you know, we don't know how much of this is going to be take it on board or how long it will take for these things to come through. So as you say, at the moment, football isn't fixed, is it? But we'll talk to Tracy um, about how she hopes to fix it very shortly. 
Yeah, and I think Steve's comment has some has some merit. Uh, you, you you get taxed on profits in other industries mm. rather than revenue. So um, I, I think his, his is a valid observation. Um, I, I don't agree with his view that this is government interference because the whole point, you know, one of the key things that comes from the report is that the regulator is independent of government. I, mean, I, right. I don't want government interference in football because let's face it, the way they run other things isn't necessarily a 100% success. So therefore, why should that be the case in terms of football? Uh, you know, I'm, I, I've, I've not seen Jacob Rees-Mogg do too many keepy-uppies um, at games and 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 and, th- and that's fine you know each each to their own but um the whole point about an independent regulator it is independent from government it has powers but it is also sourced and uses people that can make common sense decisions for for the benefit of the game as a whole as opposed to individual clubs which are run on a self-interest basis. And you know, we've said all along, self-interest is is not a bad thing, but it doesn't mean that the global decisions come come, come about of that, which are, are for the benefit of the game as a whole. Mm. Uh, I, I hear Jacob Rees-Mogg is actually very good at the Eton Wall game. I imagine. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how the Eton Wall game works, but he's very good at it. I, would, I, 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 would, I believe that results in an Eton mess. <laughs> I would... Um, I would pay good money to see Jacob Rees-Mogg do keepy uppies on the pitch at half time at Sellers Park, <laughs> yes. and, then, and then catch the ball with his top hat. That would be a, a very pleasing image. Um, I've met the man; very pleasant outwardly, and uh, not when you talk to him. Uh, luckily, I took an instant dislike to him, which saved me a bit of time. Um, questions, Kieran? We have many, and they are quite comprehensive today. I think you'd have liked you'd have liked these. It's a proper. A proper accountants examiner paper coming up for you, um, and our first question comes from Dan Southall. Uh, and Dan says, "I'm sure Kieran has explained this previously. Welcome to my world, Dan. I, 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 I say lots of things and think to myself, I'm sure he has explained this previously. I'll try and pay attention this time. I'm sure Kieran has explained this previously, but I was wondering if you could break down the differences between Premier League and UEFA." FFP, Financial Fair Play Regulations, and contextualise them around my club, Wolves. Whilst at the time it was incredible to qualify for the Europa League in 2019, since then UEFA have been more interested in our finances, and I can't help but feel that qualifying has actually been detrimental to us as a club. Did we overachieve too soon if such a thing exists? Is, is Dan right? Are UEFA casting a BDI on Wolves since that uh, European adventure? That they are, and I think his, uh, his observations actually carry some merit. Under UEFA rules, clubs are allowed to lose a maximum of €30 million Euro over a three-year period, and you cannot include the profits on stadium sales. Um, whereas under the Premier League rules, you're allowed to lose £105 million, pounds, which in, in today's money is probably about €120 million, Euro. And if you do sell your stadium, you can include that within the calculation. So the the, the Premier League rules are far more relaxed than, than those of UEFA. Um, Wolves were fantastic, uh, you know, in, in their in, in their initial uh, appearances in in the Premier League when they were after being promoted, um, and therefore they got to the Europa League. But as a result of that, um, they had exceeded the thirty million euro um, target. 
which meant that had they won the um, Europa League uh, in 2019-20 and therefore automatically qualified for the Champions League the following season, they would have been subject to a squad size restriction. Mm. But this this is where I think they are being hampered to a certain extent. Um, as part of their settlement with UEFA, that they agreed to commit to the UEFA limit for 2021-22, which is the present season. So whereas... You know, your club and my club, um, we both can, if if our owners so decide, we can target or rather we can go up to the £105 million limit. Um, Wolves are effectively committing themselves to the €30 million Euro limit. Now, that you might say, well, that's a price for success because you know you, you are going to get the benefits of the additional money arising as a result of qualifying for European competition. But uh, it, it does hamper them to a slight extent as well. Hmm. I'm sure Dan would like us to point out, because it was a, back in the day, in the 50s, Wolves were arguably the biggest club in Europe, weren't they? They were huge. Oh, they were, they were um, fantastic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it does seem a shame. It's almost like punishing success, isn't it? Which is a, which is a shame, but it's nothing for you or I to worry about in the immediate future. Um <laughs> <laughs> I was in a bad mood when I got home from Sellers Park yesterday watching the first half of your game increased that bad mood. That was Well, try, um, try being colourblind and watching ninety minutes of it. Oh my lord, yeah, of course. I keep forget I keep forgetting to be sympathetic to you, Kieran, when I see when I watch a game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Uh, uh, Sam Hoyle. Uh, hello, Sam. Sam Hoyle has a question about a name um, that we've talked about a lot in the first few weeks of this this pod. Uh, what is the latest on the Jean-Kevin Augustine transfer? You briefly covered this last summer as Leeds contested the obligation to buy option in Big Kev's loan deal from Leipzig using the COVID delay as a justification. But what has happened since? And is this one of the worst transfers of all time? I, I can't say Big Kev without being carried back to school days when I had the worst nickname of all, Middle Kev. There was, a, <laughs> there was a Big Kev and there was a Little Kev. I'd rather have been Little Kev than Middle Kev. Uh, but it was better than Doris, let's put it. So it's, I, I, it's, it's a subjective one, worst transfer. I, I would argue that Valerian Ishmael's transfer to Crystal Palace was probably one of the worst transfers of all time. He was shocking. Uh, but yes, yeah, so what's got? It's gone very quiet on this transfer, kid, and it was a it was a complicated old deal, wasn't it? Yes. Now, for people not familiar with the uh, with the issue, uh, Jean Kevin Augustine was uh, played for RB Leipzig, and in the season that Leeds were promoted, he he went on loan to Leeds um, with a view to there was an obligation to buy if Leeds were promoted. Now, Leeds were arguing that that obligation to buy expired on the 30th of June Mm. um, 2019, I think it was. And uh, because the... No, sorry, 2020. Because the season was extended as a result of the initial uh, absence of football and then project restarted, Leeds were not formally promoted until... July 2020. Mm. So Leeds have said, well, at the 30th of June, we had not been promoted and therefore we were not obliged to buy him for £20 million. Uh, I think it's fair to say that his uh, his contribution to Leeds' promotion run, uh, run uh, was uh, modest um, and he made relatively few appearances. Um, Leeds therefore said we're not signing him. Um, RB Leipzig said, well, we're going to appeal to FIFA because we think 
you have to pay us £20 million. We don't want it. Um, and FIFA ruled in favour of RB Leipzig. Now, uh, Jean-Kevin Augustine is now um, on loan at Nantes. He's not scored a goal since uh, 2018. Uh, welcome to my world. As a <laughs> um, and um, he, you know, and, and we've also got to remember, we are talking about a young man here who yes, we are yes. talking as if he's a commodity. Yes. And Leeds and RB Leipzig are treating him wholly as a commodity. Yeah. Um, so Leeds have appealed, is my understanding, in respect of the FIFA ruling. So it is now going to go to CAS, the Court for Arbitration for Sport. Um, I think they are hoping to resolve the matter early in 2022. Um, our silver tongue friends, as you can imagine, will be uh, sharpening their knives and uh, looking at their hourly rate charts with glee as, as, they, uh, as they come to deal with this matter. So um, he's... He's not a player of Leeds. He's uh, he's not officially a player of RB Leipzig. I think Leeds have uh, said we're not we're not paying. Yeah, we are going to appeal, uh, and we will have to wait and see as to how this particular story develops. There is an element of yeah, Kieran. We, as you say, we're not lawyers. We are occasionally silver tongued, but we're not lawyers. <laughs> but there's an element of sophistry in that argument from Leeds. I mean, surely most people would accept that you're you're promoted on the, the last day of the season or the day you win the playoffs or you know, this idea that we weren't technically in the in the higher division until our registration arrived or until the first day of the season seems a a, a dodgy one to me, Kieran. But as as you say, people who are paid much more an hour, um i.e. something an hour, uh to, to work this out, we'll work this out. Um, Gavin Smith has our next question. Gavin is a Norwich City fan, and Gavin says, "Let's ignore the BK8 debacle, as I'm sure it will have been covered already." Yep. Yes. I'm, I'm probably, yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I, refer, I refer you back to Dan Seifel. I'm sure Kieran has explained this previously. Um, the reason is cl- the club has sold out to the highest bidder is that they're trying to be self-funding. They rely on no debt and being bailed out by the owners. I'm sure this is the kind of model we would all want our clubs to be run like. But do you believe it's sustainable? in any of the English leagues. I would have thought, Kieran, that being reliant on owners bailing you out isn't particularly the model you do want your club to be run by, is it? Or am I wrong? Well, if you talk to a fan of Manchester City and Chelsea, both mm. of whose yes. owners have put in you know, in excess of a billion pounds into the club, they would say, yeah, sustainability, we are being sustained. We just happen to be sustained by somebody else's checkbook. So it it depends how you define sustainability. If you want ind- sustained independent of the owners, um, it's something that fans will claim that they do want. But as soon as you go into detail, they will say, no, no, because uh, that then comes across as lack of ambition by the owners. So mm. um, in... in so I've been through the numbers. If we take a look at the Premier League, the Premier League has now had 49 clubs. We've now got 50 clubs in the shape of Brentford. If you take a look at the 49 clubs for whom I've got financial data for, as far as the Premier League is concerned, only 15 of those have made profits of more than a million pounds in the first 30 years of the Premier League. The vast majority have made losses. Um, and the clubs who have made the biggest losses are the ones who have won the most trophies in the last decade. So um, there, there, there is this. Yeah, we've always said this. This, 
this conflict, this this meeting of minds. Um, and I, I'm not here to plug my book, but in in my book, um, I've actually got a <laughs> chapter which says why why own a football club. There's four reasons: love, profit, vanity, and insanity. And if you're going down the sustainable route, I think you're coming it from the the point of view of love that you mm. you want. You know, we, we've you know, we got friends like Andy Holt. We we know the Palioses at at Tramier. They are running their clubs with a view to broadly trying to keep them on a break even model. Um, and the fans have bought into that because there's been fantastic communication between the clubs and the fan base. Where that doesn't happen. You, you get conflicts between owners and fan bases. Um, and it, it's, it's very, very difficult. If we take a look at the sustainable model, I would say Spurs have a really good sustainable model. But look at their trophy cabinet. Yeah. We've got Burnley, who have got a sustainable model in, in the Premier League. They, they run a really tight ship. Um, are they going to win anything? No, you know, that we, we know what we're going to get from Burnley week in, week out. Extremely well drilled side um, with, with a particular pattern of play, which some people like and some people are less complimentary about. So that's that's the problem, that football ultimately is a talent but is a talent business, and the best talent is very expensive, and it's very difficult to recruit the best talent and be sustainable. That's interesting. So, uh, in a way, our empty trophy cabinets are a good thing, is what you're saying? Um, yes, because yeah. having, having an empty trophy cabinet, but having the knowledge that Crystal Palace are still going to be around in five years' time, is actually quite a good thought. Because yeah. you, know, you, you don't support Crystal Palace for trophies, do you? Yeah, if, if you were just interested in trophies, you'd abandon them years ago. As yeah, we, 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 you and I have both had this same discussion. We we've been supporting our clubs for more than fifty years. And it's because we've got relationships with other fans. It's it's a day at football is a day out on which the football is the 90 minutes upon which we justify mm. going to that pub, talking to your mates, the same bollocks, the same stories, the same the same reminiscences of away trips, uh, the, the same ch- yeah, the same chats about bands who were who were in fashion 30 years ago and so on. And that's actually very good for us. As as el- elderly men, and I think we probably <laughs> we do we do now both qualify as that. I think it's very good in terms of community, bringing people together, and so on. But it, it ain't going to win trophies by by supporting our clubs. But but mm. I, I I I could you know I, I lived in Manchester for forty years. The thought of supporting another club it, it, it's is just. It just doesn't enter your just doesn't enter your head. Yeah. Funny enough, we spent most of the time in the pub yesterday reminiscing about how good the funeral was and arguing about who got the most drunk, which I think <laughs> Dad would have liked. Um Scott Reese has a very simple question, and it's one uh, even though for my attention span, I'm fairly certain we haven't actually covered. Scott says the likes of Liverpool and Man United are massive clubs. Clubs like Newcastle and Sunderland are big clubs. On the pod, you even make reference to Sheffield Wednesday and Derby being big clubs. My question is, what makes a big club a big club? Is it simply how much revenue they generate, how many fans they have domestically, or how many followers they have on social media or other stuff? It's a good question, isn't it, Kim? I think I think it's an absolutely brilliant question for which there is no definitive answer. 
but I, I think he has raised some of the good. You know, for me, it's um, you know, I, I always think that those clubs when I was growing up who regularly were able to host FA Cup semi-finals. So that's for me, Sheffield Wednesday's a big club because you know, we used to have FA Cup semi-finals there. It's the same with Aston Villa. Villa it used to be Villa Park, Old Trafford, uh, you know, Main Road, uh, Goodison. Uh, you know that. So, so that was a contributory factor. Um, I, I then sort of said, it, "Does it? Does, does winning the Premier League make you a big club?" But no disrespect. I think they're. You know, I've, I've been there many good good occasions. There, Blackburn ain't a big club. Yeah, yeah. Fair uh, point. Leicester aren't a big club, and I don't know why. Um, in terms of Derby, um, I think I think Derby have had some. Yeah, Derby had Clough. Yeah, and that's yeah. Derby are a. Yeah, and, and they're probably not a big club anymore, but they are still as part of our culture. You know, you, you and I, we we remember Derby's success in in the early seventies yeah. under Clough and Taylor, and and in those days, you were always proud and supported the English team which got into the European Cup because they were representing England, in my opinion, whereas now they are representing hedge funds, overseas mm. owners, oligarchs, and so on. And you don't you don't have that same, I think, sense of national uh, attachment. So, so, you know, that, that, that's my view. Um, it's it, it's in, in terms of what do the media consider to be a big club? It's simply clicks and viewing figures. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, my dad had very strict criteria on supporting other teams in different competitions. He would always, uh, if Palace weren't involved, as they never were, obviously, he would always support the London team, not Watford, uh, and it stopped there. That was it. If you say to him, you supporting Man United in this, you go, no, Paris is closer to me than Manchester. <laughs> fair point. Yeah, no, fair, well, it's, it's good to have criteria. It's good to have strict limits. He would, he would support a London team, not Watford, but that was it. Uh, now, this question, Kieran, it comes from Dominic Canane. I, I presume it's Canane, Dominic. My apologies if it's not. Uh, Dominic Canane has a question that I had to read several times, Kieran, and, and to be honest, I'm still not quite sure about it, but it's an important one. And it's about a club we just mentioned as being sustainable. Dominic says that my dad, his dad, obviously had a few shares in Spurs, which were bequeathed to me after his death a few years ago. The shares are no longer listed on the stock exchange as Daniel Levy delisted them in 2012, citing that the AIM listing was restricting the club in gaining access to increased funding for the new stadium. The shares are now listed on something called Signal Shares, which was previously called Asset Match. My question is thus, knowing what we now know about Spurs' financial borrowing to finance the stadium, does Daniel Levy's original reason for the delisting the shares ring true? And if not, as I'm aware that listed companies are able to borrow funds for capital investment projects, what other reasons could be behind this original delisting of the shares? This is exactly the sort of question producer guy had in mind when he sidled up to me and said, I want to do a financial football podcast. <laughs> and I went, good luck with that. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I think uh, I think Daniel Levy's stated justification for delisting uh, Spurs from the AIM market is best filed under the word bollocks. Uh-huh. Um, okay, because um, as as Dominic points out, uh, listed companies can raise money. Manchester United is a listed company. It's 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 got uh, five hundred million pounds worth of debt. 
that that that's a complete non-issue. It had that five hundred million pounds of debt when it decided to become listed. Mm. So um, that's that's simply uh, garbage. I, I suspect the main reason is that if you are a listed company. Um, the compliance costs in terms of what you have to submit, the rules, the the, the 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 rules and regulations that you have to follow to be a listed company, those are more onerous, and that's why we have seen many other clubs choose to be delisted uh, historically. Hearts, Sheffield United, you know, uh, other clubs. Um, Arsenal were listed um, until a couple of years ago, so so there's a cost saving. Uh, there's there's slightly less scrutiny. Um, of the financial statements. Um, if you're a listed company, you normally have to publish your accounts within six months, I think it is, of your year end, whereas it's nine months if you're a private company. Um, so therefore, that gives Spurs flexibility. And Spurs are a very intriguing club in that every year they used to make profits, they would normally publish their accounts just before the deadline. Um, uh-huh. And and that's that's perfectly acceptable. In the last couple of years, when they have made sizable losses, they've published their accounts in November stroke December. Now, a cynic, and I'm not a cynic, Kevin. Mm-hmm. A cynic would say they are deliberately publishing their results uh, when they've made sizable losses to try to justify not spending money in the January transfer window. But uh-huh. yeah, that would, but yeah, I'm 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 just glad that I don't wear that particular hat. Yes, um, uh, yes. How, how, how we don't even know anybody that cynical, Kieran. That's good to no, know. No, no. Um, a, a couple of technical questions, Kieran, if you don't mind, because I sure. am, as you know, a bear of small brain when it comes to this sort of matter. Um, what is what is the AIM listing? What are signal shares? And is Dominic sitting on any, on any money here, or are these shares now worthless? Um, the the AIM, uh, we, we've got the, the main London stock market, uh, which has an awful lot of compliance rules and the AIM is a um is a light version of that it, it's, oh, okay. it's so the compliance costs are, are are lower um in terms of Dominic's position um the the asset match scenario that he was talking about is that yes yeah, potentially he is sitting on some money and what happens with asset match is that every two months they say two spurs private shareholders, we're going to hold an auction of Spurs shares. So if you want to sell them, tell us how many you've got to sell and we will act as your auctioneer. And and the reason why that might be beneficial if you are trying to sell is that otherwise, if, if you if you own shares in a private company, trying to work out the value is a bit of a nightmare and trying to match buyers and sellers is not easy either. It, mm. um, whereas I think what they're doing with the asset match approach, the auction approach, it's it's similar to uh, if you're a farmer, what do you do? Well, you know, once every once every couple of months, you, you pop down to the farmers market with your with your twenty sheep that you're going to sell, and somebody auctions them off on your behalf, and, and you you get what happens to be the market price on the day. It's a lot easier for the farmer to take that approach than to hope that somebody's going to be driving past his farm and say, "Oh, I'll have three of your sheep." Kieran, what sort of farmers markets are you going to? I, I, we have the odd farmers market here in London, and you can buy a lamb chop 
no one, no one's turning up to the farmers' market on Stretton Green hoping to buy a sheep, Kieran. Well, I, I remember I, I, my my family've got a farm in Tipperary, so uh, of course, when, yes. when, I, when I when I grew up there, that was uh, always used to be very exciting. You, you know what auctioneers are like. Well, you put that into country Irish brogue, <laughs> and you imagine the speed at where what, the, at what they're going through. And I used to just go and sit there wide eyed. It was just absolutely incredible stuff. Yeah, how many sheep did you accidentally buy? <laughs> Pocket money's gone again, Mum, sorry. Um, Benjamin Hodder has a question. I suspect Benjamin may be a Derby fan. He doesn't specify. Uh, Benjamin just wants to know what percentage of clubs survive relegation when starting with a points deduction? Um, well, this 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 depends upon the number of points. Uh, I mean, um, Luton Town were... Given a thirty-point deduction mm. uh, by, and that effectively kicked them out of the EFL. Um, we've seen Birmingham City being given a nine points deduction, and they survived a couple of seasons ago. Sheffield Wednesday were given six points, and they they were relegated. Leeds United uh, started off with a fifteen points deduction in League One, I think in was it two thousand and seven, and they got into the playoffs. Um, so it, it really, really does vary. Um, Macclesfield Town um, last season were given just enough points mm. to kick them out of the EFL yeah. um, after the season, how it ended. Again, you know, a cynic would say that the EFL were keen to get rid of Macclesfield Town yeah. because Macclesfield Town were a potential problem. But again, yeah, we're not cynics on this show. Yeah, and it's good to see, uh, whatever you think of Robbie Savage, it's good to see him doing some sterling work with the new Macclesfield team. He's it, it, so. He's brilliant, Robbie. I, yeah. I, I used to catch the train back to, uh, to because he, he he lived in Macclesfield. Well, when I was when I was commuting effectively to watch Brighton home games, and I used to live near there, he'd quite often be on the train, and he was always a football mad, and he wasn't playing the the pantomime villain that he does in mm. on sort of traditional media. He, I, I always found I, him very very interesting to listen to. I imagine you could smell him two carriages down as well because he, <laughs> yes. he really does. He's not buying his aftershave from Superdrug. It's, it's, always, it's always like every time I'm in his coming, I'm like Pepe Le Pew, just hooking my nose onto the waft of Robbie Savage. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to apologise to Mads. As I think I've got Mads' first name right. Um, the second name I'm struggling with. Mads Tustad. T-H-U-E-S-T-A-D. Please let me know. I should pronounce that, Mads. Um, so apologies. But Mads says, many clubs seem to have owners with two companies, one for the football club and one for real estate. If that second company owns a stadium and other properties that make the company money, how does this impact FFP, financial fair play? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's good that a guy whose name is Two Stad is talking about stadiums as well. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, it's a bit, bit of a crossword clue, but yeah, it's quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in terms of what happens here, and it is it, it is quite common for the football club to separate out the um, real estate part of the business from the football club, is that ultimately they will be put together in, in the umbrella of what's referred to as a holding company. And the holding company will own both the football club and the real estate company, and it's the holding company whose accounts will be used for FFP purposes. So that's that's why it's it's not really an issue from an FFP perspective. Um, 
in theory, you know, what can happen is that if an owner wants to sell the club, he can sell the club and keep ownership um, of the stadium. Yeah, uh, uh, and also, if the club, if if, if he thinks, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a bit concerned about the club's finances, perhaps I ought to sell the club stadium to myself. And if the football club goes into administration, um, then at least I've got the protection of owning the the stadium company, which won't necessarily go into administration as well. Mm. Uh, Matt Wormsley is a Blackburn fan. We've spoken about Blackburn uh, a lot recently, not necessarily uh, in good terms. But Matt's a Blackburn fan who is fully aware, he says, that we are perilously close to the EFL profit and sustainability limits. As I understand it, the rules currently allow for an average thirteen million pound a year loss, and this is now being averaged over a four-year period due to the impact of COVID. However, given that the last four years for my club incorporates the two twenty eighteen nineteen season, when we had a brief and ultimately glorious year touring League One grounds, how does that affect the calculation? Is that year included, or will it be ignored completely? No, um, Matt, that year is included because if you go into the EFL uh, website, um, and I, I have been known to dip a toe in there once or twice. Um, then, uh, if you go to the financial fair play section of the the governance uh, element of the website, um, you will see that what the EFL say is that for championship clubs, for every year that they have been a member of the EFL the £13 million rule applies. So therefore, um, the the 2018-19 season and the losses uh, incurred in that season do contribute towards the rolling uh, three-year £39 million. Now, in terms of where are Blackburn, um, based on the last three years' worth of accounts, Blackburn have lost £57 million. We know that we can do tweaks and adjustments and bits and pieces um, to to reduce those losses for FFP purposes, but I think Matt is is absolutely correct that they are um, pretty close to the limit. Um, so that's why we've seen um, some fairly modest spending by Blackburn and, and you know, one or two players potentially leaving the club. I mean, you know, Alan Armstrong was sold, for example. Yes, he was. And he, he was much talked about, wasn't he? And a lot of yes. clubs were after him. Um, David Holliday has a question that um, has raised itself before, but I think it's always worth asking again. David says, I was just wondering how exchange rates work with transfer payments, especially with increasing number of transfers set to be paid in instalments over several years. For instance, in August 2019, the euro is essentially the same value as the pound. However, recently, the rate is almost £1 to €1.19. Euro. This may not seem like much, but for a transfer of £50 million, this equates to a difference of almost £10 million. Is it just market luck, or do clubs set up transfer payments to reflect currency swings? Well, what uh, what some clubs do is they, they do what's referred to as hedging. So if, if you know that you're going to be paying three instalments um, of a transfer, what you can do is that you can set up an option to buy currencies at fixed rates at future dates, and and mm-hmm. that 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 hedges or minimises the amount of risk when it comes to transfers. The price is usually set by the selling company. If you think about it, yeah, if, if you're Palace and somebody comes in and tries to buy one of your players, Steve Parrish says, "Well, I, I'm he's, I'm selling him for thirty million quid because yeah, I have to go and pay my wages in sterling." Now, whether that club is based in the UK or France or Russia or China. 
Steve Parrish wants 30 million quid. So therefore, the financial risk tends to be borne by the buyer. Similarly, if you're a Premier League club and you're buying a player from overseas, here you can have currency gains and losses. If, um, if, If you take a look at the Manchester United accounts, for example... And I don't recommend doing this unless you really are a nerd. Um, You will see um, because they are listed in the US and they have borrowed money, mainly in dollars, the value of their loans goes up or down each year because they publish their accounts in sterling. So currency risk can be mitigated through what's referred to as hedging. And you would simply set out a series of options or or forward contracts to to mitigate your, your currency losses. Well, talking of accounts, Kieran, Ben Andrew has a very simple question. But again, it's one of those questions that we probably haven't answered fully. And it's about a subject very close to your heart. Because Ben Andrew says, what is the advantage to clubs that don't publish their accounts? If they took place one or two years ago, then the profit or loss has already taken place. So what does delaying the publishing of them gain? Well, um, it, it gains you for a short period of time an extra layer of privacy. Uh, I mean, we had the Luton Town Chief Executive, Gary Sweet, on the show a couple of years ago now. And yeah. this was this was actually a question I asked to him at the time. And he said, look, we're Luton Town. We are looking for as many marginal gains as possible. And if by showing uh, more cut-down versions of accounts or delaying the accounts right until the last minute, that means that there is less information which is held by our competitors. Um, That could be useful to us um, if we're going into a transfer negotiation, especially Mm. in the January window. And that's why we see so few clubs publishing their accounts before January because they they don't want to give the the game away. But if if other clubs know how much money they have made or lost, therefore in their heads what they will do, they will find – they will either have a spreadsheet nerd – or they will email the spreadsheet nerd and say, <laughs> any chance you could calculate the rough FFP position of this club? And it's amazing the emails you get um, from people um, on that basis. Um, so, um, and, and you know, going back to what I've just been saying about Spurs, you know, why is it that Spurs pub- are now decided to publish their accounts earlier? Have, have they mm. become the good guys of football? Or... Is this a bit of soft signalling to the fan base? Look, guys, yeah, we just lost 80 million quid this year. You can't expect us to go splashing the cash in the January window. Now, our last question, Kieran, um, begins with another name (laughs) apology. Uh, The question is from Deji Fasahun. And I I really, I imagine I made a complete rickets of that, Deji Fasahun. But if you can let us know how you pronounce these things... Um, Every now and again, just put it in brackets phonetically so I sound grown up and mature, uh, which is a tautology, of course. Uh, Deji is from Nigeria, and he says, I am one of your silver-tongued friends. Now, apart from the Premier League and other European leagues, which country has a profitable league which we here in Nigeria could emulate to grow our league in revenue and other aspects? For instance, would you advise we mirror the MLS or A-League or maybe even the J-League operations in Japan? Can you state which of these leagues is actually the most profitable? Also, can you please state the average amount of money FIFA gives the Nigerian FA each year, if they do, as this information is not made readily available to us? Mm. Right. Uh, in respect of Deji's first question, 
I would say that from a profitability perspective, um, the MLS model, which has no promotion or relegation, has wage caps where owners have to pay a joining fee uh, to get their club in the league. That is probably the the one which uh, has has the least risk and, and de-risking football is something which attracts investors. So that would be the approach I would take. Uh, the Australian A-League is, is a bit hit and miss uh, in terms of profitability and, and also in terms of, of attendance and interest. So um, I would say that the MLS is proving to be um, reasonably good from a, from a business point of view. If, if that's how you see football purely as entertainment, the idea of moving up and down the, the snakes and ladders approach, which which we've grown up with, and, and I'm not saying mm. it, you know, it, it's not the only way of of, uh, of having a sport, but it, it's something which is embedded, I think, in, in our psyche. Um, with with uh, with reference to his second question, um, I'd always recommend that you actually go to the FIFA annual report, and what you will see there is um, FIFA have something called the FIFA Forward uh, Project, which gives money to individual countries and individual projects. Now, most most countries get an annual fee from FIFA. Um, based on the on on the profits, uh, but uh, so in in the in the last World Cup, for example, I think they gave every every country in FIFA, and there are two hundred and seven of them. I think they gave them initially. Um, I think it was half a million dollars, and then a further half million dollars because the the uh, the Russia World Cup proved to be a success financially, um, and they also have a series of projects which they do fund and. Whilst I am critical of certain aspects of FIFA in the sense that, in my view, it is institutionally corrupt, and that is just an opinion, um, they also have an awful lot of very good people who have the the best interests of the game at heart and who are involved in in funding some of these projects, um, trying to ensure that that money is actually spent on those projects can be more of a challenge, but they are trying to audit how that money is spent um, a little more, and, and that's got to be welcomed. We've already ascertained, Kieran, that you're not a cynic. Imagine what you'd think of FIFA if you were a cynic, Kieran. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's funny. Nigeria is one of those many countries uh, where we always enjoy watching the national team and seeing what new kit they're going to come up with, but we know nothing about the actual league football in those countries. but And, and the Nigerian FA for some years have, have sort of followed the Brazil Harlem Globetrotters approach, haven't they, and sending the national team out around the world, especially to, to places. I remember they played at the Fulham a couple of years ago, mm. especially to places with a, uh, a large African-Nigerian population. I presume that's a successful model for them, Kieran, is it? Yes, yes. To, to effectively uh, say to a, a hosting club, you know, we can we can make you money and we can make ourselves money um is 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 a model which works and as you say yeah the, the nigerian kits have been one of the most fantastic kits oh. in most recent world yeah. cups and uh yeah i i think uh yeah they, they are the personification of cool when it comes to football absolutely and that's a that's a, always a good note to end on isn't it kieran uh, i thought at one stage we would become the personification of cool kieran but it turns out <laughs> doing a football finance podcast is not 
the most direct route towards coolness. Thank you to everybody who listens to our pod, call or otherwise, and thank you to everyone who's made a donation to the pod via our Patreon site. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to our always free-to-air podcast, then please go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, once again, folks, thanks for the feedback. Uh, on, on a variety of means, so yeah, we, we've had emails from people. Um, we uh, when we when we make mistakes, you're 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 very quick to uh, point things out to us on oh, yes. on social media, and mm-hmm. and we welcome that because you know mm-hmm. it, we we all you learn through your mistakes. Um, if you if you want to support the the podcast, uh, Patreon is one one way of doing that. If you if you want to give us some good karma, just go to that uh, that Apple uh, podcast app. And if you can uh, subscribe on that, or if you can give us give us a review, um, it doesn't actually matter what you say. So you know, if you give us five stars, that helps us in the charts. That helps us to give us credibility when we're trying to book guests for the show. Um, and you can say whatever you want. You could say you could say you'd, you'd rather it be be hosted by Hillary Clinton and Virgil from Thunderbirds, <laughs> and, and and that wouldn't bother myself or Kevin. We genuinely wouldn't. <laughs> that was a ra- even by your standards that was random yes <laughs> I, used to, I, I used to love even as a kid it used to make me laugh so much when Thunderbirds would would cut to a close up of a human hand yes it was, it was always very very funny um Christmas is coming, everybody, as you all know, if you've been watching the adverts since mid-August. Uh, <laughs> and we we are having a, a Christmas quiz, which uh, Guy tells me is an annual event. I don't remember any of them. But we are having a Christmas quiz, and we will be letting you know the date of that Christmas quiz very shortly. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Bye. The Bye, son, for the